We have been in a series over the last four or five weeks entitled The Brave New World that's based on the book of Ephesians. So if you haven't been with us, we're glad that you're here tonight and you're jumping into the middle of something that we're engaged in together. And the the broad scope of this series is to say that the book of Ephesians depicts for us a vision of the better world or what we're calling the brave new world. And this challenges our competing visions of how we get a better world. And so that's one of the challenges that we want to keep in our, the forefront of our mind is how does the vision Paul gives us in Ephesians challenge our vision of what the world is to be and how it's to get better. And then secondly, uh, for those of us who agree with Paul's vision, it invites us in to fuller and deeper participation in our lives with the, the vision, the, the work that God is doing in Jesus the Messiah. So tonight we're going to turn to the, a text in uh, chapter 2, one of the most well-known probably sections of Ephesians. And we're going to look more at our role in the midst of this brave new world. Um, And to get the role, we have to get the story. I said something the first, uh, the opening message of this series uh, that Alistair McIntyre in his 1981 book After Virtue said, we cannot answer the question, what ought we to do? Until we answer the question of what story am I a part? It's the story, it's the, the, the overarching view of the world that we have that actually informs our sense of action and call and purpose. And the danger for us in the church is to have a de-storied view of the Christian gospel, which goes something like this, that the whole point of what God did in Jesus is to simply save me and give me eternal life so I can get to heaven And that's been often sort of flatlined down so much so that we begin to ask the question. And and I remember asking this question personally um, when I was younger. Well, what am I supposed to do next? You know, like we got that figured out. Now what am I supposed to do next? What is this whole thing for? And when we have a more two-dimensional vision of what God is doing in the world, it tends to create a sense of, of apathy or of confusion and often just a vacuum. And the vacuum of losing the very storied texture of the work of God in Jesus is that we fill it with another story. The story of human progress, of personal success or fulfillment. And we start to operate, we've got this little great secret in our back pocket and we think it's terrific, but it never connects to the rest of what we're doing. And that's the danger of an unstoried view of what God is doing in Jesus. Now, Paul could never be accused of being unstoried or flatlining what God is doing in Jesus. We saw already in Ephesians 1, this one sentence that he erupts into praise, where he's retelling the story of the Exodus, of the Old Testament people's rescue from bondage in Egypt. And now, as we turn to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit from last week, and look at the end of chapter 1, Paul starts to tap into an even deeper and bigger and broader story. It's the story of creation. The story of God and his world and humanity and our purpose in the midst of it. And it's no less than that big vision that is at play then when we open up our text to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And here's the key question that we're going to throw around tonight. We're going to consider. What does God's power do? What does God's power accomplish? 
We talked last week about getting our bearings, about orientation, about triangulation, on these three great things that Paul wants our eyes to see, on hope and on belonging and on power. And we're going to pick up on power because Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 1, he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. This is a power that's at work toward us or in us. It's doing something in us. And so the question is, what does God's power do? What does it accomplish? And then the follow-up question, what does that mean for my life and for yours? So that's where we're headed. That's what we want to unpack together. And we'll do it in two ways or in two parts. First, what does this power do in Jesus, in the Messiah himself? End of chapter one. And then second, what does this power do in you and me? What does it do in the Messiah? What does it do in you and me? So here's what it does in the Messiah, verses 20 through 23. This power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This power raised Christ from the dead. We just sang, Christ is risen from the dead. And seated him, another second act, the ascension, at his right hand in the heavenly places, raised him up to a place of authority and rule. Far above every power. This was a victory over all the powers swirling around in the first century world and swirling around perhaps less obviously but still just as powerfully in the 21st century world in which we find ourselves. Verse 22, and God put all things under his feet, referencing directly Psalm 8, which we read tonight, about the purpose or the role of humanity in creation. And God gave him his head over all things to the church, which is body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This church that's filling now God's brave new world. Okay, so there's a lot there. Let me just back up for a second and make this claim that what God's power does in the Messiah is it fulfills the purposes of humanity. In Jesus, the truly human one. So we got to backtrack for a second. Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and so on. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the purpose statement for humanity. Have dominion and be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because you are the image of the king. You've been made in the image of the living God. Now go out and spread that image throughout his realm by being fruitful procreation, more little images running around and spreading to the ends of the earth. And by having dominion, exercising God's benevolent, righteous reign over creation in every sphere and every corner to which you are called. This great vocation of humanity was forfeited in the sin of Adam and Eve in chapter 3 of Genesis when we ate from the wrong tree. And instead of serving the king, we became our own king and subject then to slavery, to death, and to sin. The image was distorted and broken. 
Israel, throughout the history of Israel, begins to look forward to the day when the the image of God would be restored, when humanity would be put back in its proper place. And that hope and fulfillment begins to get focused on one person, on a kingly figure. We see that in Psalm 2. We see that in Psalm 110, referenced in Ephesians 1 here. We see that again in Psalm 8, in the place of humanity over creation. The claim that Paul is making at the end of Ephesians 1 is that Jesus has been put back in the place that we were created to fulfill and to hold as human beings. In dominion, above all rule and power and authorities in this age and the age to come. Where everything's been subjected under his feet. To a place of worldwide sovereignty. Jesus, the one whom Paul says elsewhere, is the image of the invisible God. Echoing back to this Genesis 1 account. The image bearer. The one who shines God into the world. Put back into that place of worldwide sovereignty. And then we read in this interesting verse at the end of this chapter. About the church that he's been given to. Which his body that fills all in all. Stay with me. I know I'm being heavily theological here. Be fruitful and multiply. Go out and fill the ends of the earth with my image. That's the original mandate from God in Genesis 1. Now that mandate is being fulfilled in Jesus, the only one who wasn't subject to sin and death. By virtue of his resurrection shows and demonstrates that death can't hold him back and gets placed back in the place where humanity always belonged. And now, Paul says, his body is filling all things. That's what his power, God's power, This great, immeasurable power does in the Messiah. And then this is the transition moment to what does that power do in you and in me? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Those of us who have faith in the Messiah, trust in the Messiah, who've yielded our lives to the Messiah and said, Jesus is Lord. Here, here's every part of me. I'm not holding anything back here. You're my king. Note the atom resonances and illusions in chapter 2. You were dead. Verse 1. In your trespasses and sins. You were dust. Dust doesn't bring itself to life. Genesis 2. God takes the dust of the ground. And he fashions and shapes a man. You were dead. Incapable of resuscitating yourself. Lost and without hope. As Paul says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And understand that that means that God has a heart to see his world purged and purified. And that when we were in solidarity with sin itself, that we were subject to his purging love to make the world what he always wanted it to be. So we start dead in chapter 2. Verse 4, but God. That ever important phrase, but God. But God, how did he do this? Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Deep underneath the vision of the brave new world in Ephesians is the love of God. 
as Paul will erupt in this prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, that he longs for you to know the width, the height, the breadth, and the depth of this love. Breathes life into the dust. Raises us together with Christ. Pours out this resurrection power upon your life and mine and seats us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Because of his mercy and his grace and his love. I'm I'm not going to unpack that tonight. We're going to come back to that when we next are in Ephesians. Because it's worth its own treatment. You were dead. But God, rich in mercy, full of love for you, by grace has breathed life into your body. He's raised you up and seated you with Christ. So that you could come out of the solidarity with the in-Adam humanity that is enslaved to sin and to death. And you would be brought out of that sphere and placed in another sphere. The in-Messiah humanity. The humanity that is with the Messiah in the heavenly places now reigning over creation. Alive. Not subject to these principalities and powers and forces that change you. By virtue of his grace and love, you've been made alive. There's that famous pop song around by Lord called Royals. The key line, we will never be royal. It doesn't quite work with Ephesians 2. Because you've been seated in a place of dominion and rule and authority in the Messiah over the created order. You've been put back into your proper place as a restored image bearer of the king. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about all of us being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. Colossians 3.9, he says, you put on the new self, which is being renewed according to knowledge in the image of its creator. You are being brought back into that initial position that you were given in Genesis 1. A position of, of, of wonder and of glory. And he didn't just do this, and this is where the de-storied reading needs to be challenged, particularly in Ephesians 2, because in Ephesians 2, a lot of times we come to this text and we think, that's awesome, God loves me, he's got grace for me, mercy for me, great, I've been saved by grace through faith. Now what? But look at verse 10. Not only were you dead, now you've been raised, and you've been given a job to do, for we are his workmanship. He fashioned us from the dust. Created again a new, new creation in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. He gave Adam life. He breathed into him. And then as we read in Genesis 2, he gave him a task to toil and till and work the garden. And in the new creation life, in the brave new world that God is making, he has not only resurrected you, but he's given you a task. He's created you for the good works that he's prepared before him for you to do. You're like the new Adam. You have a task, a job to do that we should walk in them. Paul begins, and we're not going to get into it tonight, but we'll move there in chapters 4 and 5 to begin to unpack what that 
good work is that God has prepared for us to walk into. And we'll start to flesh it out a little bit as we get to the more practical, exhorting sides of this letter. But right now, he's just orienting us again. All of chapters 1 through 3 is orientation into this great story that you have a part to play in. I'll just say by way of a kind of preview or a trailer that this culminates in Ephesians 5.1 to become imitators of God and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up, gave himself up for us. We walk as the newly created humanity now spreading the image of God through our taking up the role and the task that he's given to us to walk in a cross-shaped love in every sphere of our lives. That is, here's here's where we'll start to wrap this up. Our call, according to Ephesians 1 and 2, is to bring this new creation, resurrection life, to bear in every sphere of the universe. In every sphere of creation to which God has called you and to which God has called me. In your parenting, if you're laboring and raising young children and you know how hard that is. In your studying, if you're a student and you're working in a degree program. In your working, if you're working in business or law or academia. In your friendships, the people that you know on your block, in your marriage, in all of your relationships. To bring this new creation life to bear upon the world. And as you do so, Christ's body, which is the church, will begin to fill all in all. And the Genesis 1 mandate to have dominion. How do we have dominion? Through love, through the cross, through walking in love. And to be fruitful and to spread the image through the world. Through love will go forth. Through you and through me as we walk into the fullness of this vocation that God has given us. This means that every aspect of our life has meaning, deep meaning. I read a novel this summer called Stoner by John Williams. And I was, it's a, it's a, it was a beautiful novel, but I was so struck by the de-storied nature of the main character's life. Farm boy, Missouri, goes off to University of Missouri and becomes a professor of English. And in many many senses, labors beautifully at the task that's before him. This is a quote from the end of that novel as he's reflecting back on his life. And it says this, or as the narrator's reflecting, it says he'd come to that moment in his age when there occurred to him with increasing intensity a question of such overwhelming simplicity that he had no means to face it. He found himself wondering if his life were worth the living, if it ever had been. The question brought with it a sadness, but but it was a general sadness, which, he thought, had little to do with himself or his particular fate. It came, he believed, from the accretion of his years, from the density of accident and circumstance, and from what he had come to understand of them. He took a grim and ironic pleasure from the possibility that what little learning he had managed to acquire had led him to this knowledge, that in the long run, all things even the learning that let him know this, were futile and empty. And at last, diminished into a nothingness they did not alter. 
That is a destoried understanding of one's own life and work and the role of humanity. What Paul shows us here is that God, as he's working out his resurrection power in the brave new world, has restored us as his creatures to a place of deep purpose and meaning to exercise his gracious and benevolent rule and to expand the glory of his name, his image throughout the earth as we walk in this new creation life and practice resurrection in every corner to which we're called. Amen.